Futurists are looking at the 21st century. And all myths that are uh, authentic maintain a kind of dreamlike, surreal quality. Computers are taking over now. By the year 2001, man will travel about in pneumatic people tubes. It's time once again to step into the future. If you ever was a devil bought that in harness, better burn your man. I hear you, mama. You guys, I got one of those ergonomic kneeling chairs recently, and it's so, so awesome. The second I started using it, all the pain I've been dealing with was significantly reduced. Not all the way gone, but huge difference. And it really underscored how even when I'm not having a bad pain day, I've just been dealing with a constant low-grade feeling of bodily discomfort. Everywhere. Especially in my back, but all over. I love being in my 40s, seriously. Like, at a macro level, my life is amazing, and much of that is attributable to the fact that I've just reached the stage of life where I get to be me 24-7, and I no longer see any benefit to dealing with other people's shit. On the whole, I'm still really active and having fun all the time. Sex in your 40s is fantastic, so much better than when you're younger, seriously. I've got this dope-ass career, things are good, but... I am starting to feel my age a little bit. I definitely don't, like, bounce back the way I used to. And apparently my delicate fairy princess of a spine can no longer tolerate, you know, sitting in chairs. Because my back has just been wrecked for, I don't know, years now? And I never realized how thoroughly wrecked it was until I got this stupid fucking kneeling chair and suddenly sitting at my desk to write feels as good as an orgasm. Or, well, you know, like as good as an orgasm from your 20s. Not as good as an orgasm from your 40s. This is Future Saint of a New Era. I'm Libby Grant. But yeah, it's great to feel like I'll be able to manage working at full capacity again after so long struggling super hard to get through a workday. And like, my workdays, by this point in my career as a literary novelist, were already light. <laughs> so light that I am embarrassed to admit how little work I actually do nowadays. Because it sounds very out of touch and ridiculous in this reality, this like, economy where everyone is working three jobs to afford to rent a room in a house with a bunch of roommates when you're in your 30s or 40s or 50s or older. I get it, I've been there. In fact, those years are not that far in my past and I still feel that anxiety now and then. I hope it makes me look like less of an out-of-touch asshole if I really stress the fact that I worked my ass off, just ground myself to absolute dust to get where I am now. And I think that's actually why I don't work longer hours now. Like, I could get more books out and make more money if I busted my ass harder, and I know how to do it. In the early years of my full-time employment as a writer, I was constantly working, like minimum 10 hours a day, six days a week, and I was only taking one day off so Paul and I could actually spend a little time together or so I could do necessary things like go to the grocery store or the dentist or whatever. One year, uh, must have been 2015, under all the various pen names I was operating that year, I had 13 new books come out just that one year alone. And I wrote 10 of them during that calendar year. So I know I could grind away like way harder and that would translate to more income, but I've reached a place in my career where I'm very content with my income level. Like I make enough to live comfortably. I'm not a millionaire, but I earn enough that I've got all my basic needs covered and we're able to save a little bit each month. We're able to afford a place in a nice neighborhood that's quiet and pleasant and safe. We get to travel and do fun things now and again without breaking the bank. That's all I want. Having more money at this point wouldn't make me happier, and doing the work that would be required to get more money would stress me the fuck out. So my workdays are short and stupid, and I spend a lot of time lying on my back in the public garden a couple blocks down the street, staring up at the branches of trees while I listen to music, and this is exactly what I want my life to be. 
What did I bust my ass for all those years ago, if not to get where I am now? Fuck work. Fuck working. Except for the work you must do in order to survive and keep any dependents you have alive. I think, I hope, one of the positive changes that will come about over the next several years as we sort out our post-pandemic reality and also our AI-integrated reality is a dramatic change in what we value in our fellow humans. Right now, we're only allowed to find value in ourselves as it relates to our jobs. Our value is dependent on how much capital our labor can produce for somebody else. And I just think that's gross and pointless. It's a holdover from the Industrial Revolution, which was a fucked up crime against humanity and against the planet. And it's time to leave that mindset in the past where it belongs. I really hope that AI taking over or speeding up a lot of the current functions of our economic system will create some breathing space for everyone to spend more time lying in the grass looking at trees or writing 10 books a year if that's what you want to do. Just doing whatever genuinely makes you happy and makes you feel fulfilled. Because you only get one life and spending your life wearing some rich asshole's yoke is a pretty big bummer, really. Why do I want to talk about work so much lately? Maybe it's because I've been, like, relatively speaking, working my ass off all spring. Like, more than I usually work. And I only just now feel like I'm getting anywhere with what I'm doing. Ugh. But I don't know. I've just been thinking a lot lately about the workiness of my career. Like, how much of being a writer is this grunt work that no aspiring writers even imagine plays a part of living the dream. Is workiness a word? It is now. And I think part of what has me dwelling on workplace stories so much lately is the fact that um, I was very honored recently to be asked to participate in the Historical Novel Society conference this summer, next month actually in June, as a guest speaker. So I'm like one of the main authors who gets to be featured at this conference. It's an incredible honor, it really is, and I'm extremely grateful to HNS for finding my career worthy of such recognition. HNS is a really awesome conference, consistently the best writing conference I've ever been to, and the people who run it are amazing. They bust their asses so hard to put on a truly great event that's genuinely very helpful for writers who are trying to navigate the earlier stages of their careers, and I really was honored to be invited to participate as a guest speaker, and I'm very much looking forward to it. It's a little bittersweet for me too because, as I mentioned in episode one of this season, The Prophet's Wife flopped so hard that I actually don't get to write historical fiction anymore. At least not under my real name. I can still pull it off under my Olivia Hawker pen name, but you know, if I'm being forced to leave behind my true love, my favorite genre, in order to salvage my career from absolute ruin, at least I get to go out on top, right? As a special guest at the biggest conference in the whole genre? That is some comfort. It's really funny when you look at the bios of the other guests who are being featured. They're all like big time authors with real feathers in their caps. Their bios are each a mile long, just like full of all the awards they've won and detailing every book that's hit every bestseller list. And then there's my bio, which is like a hundred words and basically just says that I write books. <laughs> And a couple of them hit a bestseller list once. That's it. Like, my career looks so pathetic by comparison. It's actually comical. But ridiculous and comically sad career stories are kind of what my adult life has been all about. So in a way, I guess it's fitting. I love conferences, though. I love being able to talk to newer writers and give them honest advice about how to build and navigate their careers. Because it's hard to do. It's really hard to know how to proceed with a writing career or any other creative career. And that's mainly because there's no one-size-fits-all path. You achieve it however you achieve it. And frequently it takes a lot of thinking outside the box and experimenting with crazy things that might not work to find the thing that actually does work for you which won't work for anyone else. But I love having that conversation with newer authors, and even though my bio is tiny and pathetic by comparison to the big names in publishing, I think, or I hope, it'll be valuable to many people there to hear from someone whose career path was not conventional, someone who clawed their way to where she is now. I mean, I've never found an open door in this godforsaken industry. Never. I only am where I am now because I kicked a hole in the wall and forced my way inside. And sometimes that's what you need to do to make it happen. Before I was a writer, I worked almost every job you can imagine, and a few you would never guess. Uh, let's see. I've worked in the insurance industry, the cruise industry, in medical transcription, 
I did data entry in the emergency department of a level one trauma center. That was interesting. Obviously, I've had my share of bookstore jobs. I talked about with Tim on the last episode. I've been a barista. The usual jobs for aspiring authors. I've been a caretaker for a woman with dementia. I did wedding photography for a while. I worked for my sister's yarn dyeing company while she was pregnant so she didn't have to handle any dyes during her pregnancy. I trained dogs. I was an obedience instructor. And I handled show dogs for a while. True story. Have you ever seen the Christopher Guest movie Best in Show? It was just like that. My life was like that. Dealing with busy bee people every weekend. It was nuts. In my late 20s, I was trying to get my ducks in a row to leave my first husband and just to get out of our apartment and away from him as much as possible, I started volunteering at the zoo. I became a volunteer in the raptor department, so I was helping the keepers care for and train birds of prey for the flight shows they did for zoo visitors. I really loved that. Being around birds, being that up close and personal with them was magical. It was my experience as a professional dog trainer and handler that landed me that volunteer gig, and then that volunteer position turned into actual paid employment as a zookeeper who specialized in birds. So for three years, during and just after my divorce, and right as I was really making my first serious push to get my writing career to take off, I was a zookeeper. And I don't know, I just thought it would be really fun to share my best stories about my zookeeping days for this episode. People are always really interested in it when they hear I was a keeper, which is funny to me because, like, my writing career, comparing my bio to those of the other guest speakers at this conference, it's not that glamorous. Like, seriously, zookeeping is... 90% dealing with poop, and 10% trying to alleviate the severe psychological distress animals feel from being held in captivity. It's not actually a fun job. But it is pretty interesting, so sure, let's have Libby's best zoo stories. But first, a little musical interlude to get you in the mood for all this animal talk. Marched the animals two by two, the hippopotamus and the kangaroo. And no larks are moving and moving and moving, no larks are moving and moving along. Who build the ark? Oh, no, no. Now who build the ark? Oh, no, my lord. No larks are moving and moving and moving, no larks are moving and moving, 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 moving along. Noah and the devil playing seven up. The devil went the ark and Noah wouldn't give it up. No larks are moving and moving and moving. No larks are moving and moving along. Who built the ark? Oh, Noah, Noah. Who built the ark? Oh, Noah, my lord. No larks are moving and moving and moving. No larks are moving and moving along. I know it sent a dove to find dry land. The dove came back with a big grain of sand. No larks are moving, moving, moving. No larks are moving, moving along. Who built the ark? Oh, no, no. Now who built the ark? Oh, no, my lord. No larks are moving, moving, moving. No larks are moving, moving along. Had no hat, had no crown, looked like a poor man living in town. No larks are moving, 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 no larks are moving, moving along. Who built the ark? Oh, no, no. Now who built the ark? Oh, no, my lord. No larks are moving, 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 no larks are moving, moving along. Had no buggy, had no spokes. I looked like Grandpap and all of his folks. No larks are moving, moving, moving. No larks are moving, moving along. Who built the ark? Oh no, no. Now who built the ark? Oh no, my lord. No larks are moving, moving, moving. No larks are moving, moving along. Had no hat, had no brim, looked like a crow's nest swinging on a limb. No larks are moving, moving, moving. No larks are moving, moving along. Who built the ark? Oh no, no. Now who built the ark? Oh no, my lord. No larks are moving, moving, moving. No larks are moving, moving along. Tell Sister Mary, tell Sister Jane, I'll be home on that morning train. No larks are moving, moving, moving. No larks are moving, moving along. He built the
The first AZA-accredited facility I worked at was Tracy Aviary in Salt Lake City. It was like a six-month assignment, and it was ideal for me because it was in a different state from my then-husband, so I jumped at the opportunity. I started in January of 2009, just after the new year, and holy shit, Salt Lake City is cold in the winters, y'all. Tracy Aviary is one of two public aviaries in America. An aviary, if you don't know, is just a bird zoo. All birds, all the time. It was pretty severely underfunded at the time. They just recently brought in a new director, this British guy named Roger, who had a knack for getting nonprofits well funded. He was really cool and we all liked him, but the fact that he was a huge Shakira fan was just this endless source of entertainment for the whole staff. It was just so unlikely, this older British gentleman being obsessed with Shakira's music. He had different ringtones for different people on his phone, but they were all different Shakira songs, so we'd be in the employee house. More on that later. And we'd hear from like the records room or whatever, the muffled sound of Shakira playing. And we'd be like, oh, Roger's here. That was a really fun group of people. I liked them all. And I loved all the birds I was working with, except for one. Every species of bird you can imagine was at this aviary. Just about, just about every. It was bonkers. I worked with so many species and learned so much and they were all really cool birds, even the scary dangerous ones. But one of them was the biggest fucking asshole. If you can believe it, it was a male red-winged blackbird. Pushing apart the concealing branches to examine the nest, a neighbor is surprised by the spirited fight a nesting brown thrasher puts up in defense of her home. Thrashers are unusually vigorous in attacking intruders, but this bird is particularly bold. This bird was violent. He hated all mankind. And he knew when Roger was around, whenever Roger's phone would ring in the vicinity of his enclosure, the red-winged blackbird would lose his shit. Making angry noises, like throwing himself around. Not a Shakira fan, I guess. Somebody had to go into the blackbird's enclosure at least once a day to feed him and do the cleaning, and we all dreaded it being our turn because he knew just how to attack a human body for maximum effect. He would wait until your back was turned so you couldn't see him coming and like duck out of the way, and then he'd land on your head and just relentlessly peck super hard at your scalp. This species has a sharp beak, very sharp. It felt like somebody was trying to rapidly drive an ice pick through your skull. I figured out the only way to get through cleaning the blackbird enclosure was to take off my, uh, what do you call them now? Canadian verbiage is like taking root in my head. So up here we call it a toque. But what, like a beanie? I guess that's the word in the USA now, right? Beanie? Stretchy warm winter hat. Anyway, I'd take off my toque and fold up a couple of rags and put those on top of my head so I had like an inch thick padding on top of my head. And then I put my toque back on over it and then when I went into his enclosure, he could just hammer at my skull violently all he liked, and I barely felt it. During winter, when food is not so plentiful, I find sunflower seeds will frequently attract them to a feeding station outside my window. We had to do a lot of improvising at Tracy Aviary until Roger was able to secure that funding, but the place was held together with zip ties and the sheer willpower of six or seven bird nerds. It was incredible. Like, we couldn't afford any really great locks on the enclosures, so everything just used standard padlocks, and the barrels of the locks would fill with moisture during the day and then freeze at night. Frozen solid locks. So we all took to carrying around those barbecue lighters, you know, the ones that have, like, long necks and you pull the trigger and a flame comes out the end? Yeah, we all had one of those in our cargo pants and we would just torch the padlocks with flames to melt the ice inside and then we could get in and take care of the birds. It was a ride. But that winter was so insanely cold. Oh my God. It's been almost 15 years and I still viscerally remember the torment of being outdoors all day, every day through almost a whole Utah winter. I wore two layers of long underwear under my uniform and then a sweatshirt over my t-shirt and a heavy Carhartt jacket over my sweater. And I was still frozen all the time. As I mentioned before, there was this old house on the grounds, which served as our office and break space. There was like a little kitchen in there, bathroom, and all our record storage and all that. The employee house was heated by a wood stove, and we would get so frozen while we were working that on our breaks, we'd come inside and just sit directly on this scorching hot wood stove to try to thaw out a little. It was insane. The hawthorn tree in their front yard is more than just an attractive tree. It's a place where magnolia warblers stop to feed as they migrate northward in spring. The Salt Lake Valley is an incredibly important habitat for hundreds of species of migratory birds. It's a critical feeding ground for so many different species, so the diversity of avian life there is really surprising and fascinating, especially during the spring and fall when most of the migrations are kind of like ramping up. 
Unfortunately, that means a lot of potential avian diseases coming through, so we had to be really on top of vaccinating all the animals before exposure ticked up too much. That March, just as things finally began to thaw a little bit, we had to vaccinate the entire flamingo flock. We had, uh, I can't remember exactly how many flamingos. It was, it was somewhere around 30. Now, flamingos are really delicate birds. Their legs and other body parts can break very easily, so anytime we might potentially stress the flock out, we had to be very deliberate and like get in and get out as quickly as we could without inciting a flamingo panic, because they would just lose their shit and flail around and crash into anything and everything and probably all break themselves and die. But avian influenza was looking like it was going to be a huge problem that year, and flamingos are very susceptible to it, so we were like, we have no choice, we need to vaccinate the entire flock. It took a few days of brainstorming, but we finally came up with a method. Every zoo animal has an indoor or like off exhibit area called holding, and often animals are kept in holding overnight, or sometimes it's just there to use when animals need to be separated or handled for medical treatment or whatever. The flamingos had this holding that was an all cement room with a sharply sloped floor so you could like fill up half of the room with water so they still had an area to wait in. What we did was drain the water so the humans could move around holding easily, and then we went out to some office supply store and just got rolls and rolls and rolls of bubble wrap, and we wallpapered that damn room with a double thickness of bubble wrap. And then we moved the entire flock into holding, and my job was to kind of herd the flock around slowly and non-threateningly, just like gently shifting their position around the room until one hapless flamingo came within grabbing distance of another keeper, and then they would like catch it and restrain it, which again is a specialized skill. You have to control a flamingo's neck and keep their legs from tangling together, which is a real thing that happens with disastrous results. So the more experienced keepers snatched all the flamingos one at a time and gave them their vaccines and then turned the vaccinated ones loose into their exhibit space while I slowly and carefully edged my way around this padded cell made from bubble wrap and filled with angry flamingos trying to shift them as one body towards the keepers who were going to snatch them. So I just kept slowly circulating all these birds around this comically jerry-rigged safe room until we got down to like five birds left who hadn't been caught and vaccinated yet. And then they all started to realize that something sinister was going on. They started to freak out. They got very upset. They were honking wildly. And I remember the lead keeper just said, this is it, push them all into one corner, everybody grab a bird. And then he goes, for God's sake, don't let their legs cross. It was so tense. I was so afraid I was going to break a flamingo, but we all moved on them at the same time, like crowded them into one corner. They all spazzed out and threw themselves against the bubble wrap. It was chaos. But we each grabbed one bird and somehow, even though I'd only observed proper flamingo strength, but had never attempted it myself, I managed to do it correctly. I had its body under my right arm so it couldn't open its wings, my left hand loosely around its neck so I could stop it from flailing like a maniac, and my right hand was holding both of the legs with like one finger between them so the legs couldn't cross. I did it! I snatched a flamingo! But oh my god, I was so glad when it was vaccinated I could just let it go. They are surprised to discover such a neat bird building a fragile, poorly constructed twig nest which is flat and weak. Sometimes the nest is so flimsy that an egg will actually roll out. Not the only time I had a hair-raising experience involving medicating birds. Because of where Tracy Aviary is situated, which is inside this huge public park called Liberty Park, it attracts a lot of migratory geese. Geese are mainly grass eaters, so they love a large swath of tasty grass, so they would show up within the grounds of Tracy Aviary all the time. Normally this wasn't a big problem, and it was nothing we could do much about anyway, so whatever, we just let the Canada geese roam around freely. But that year, an extremely aggressive pair of Canada geese moved onto the pond, where we kept all our pelicans, and the pelican flock at Tracy Aviary was entirely made up of birds who'd been injured too severely to be returned to the wild. So these were, you know, defective pelicans. They were pretty helpless against the wrath of a pissed off pair of Canada geese. So we had no choice but to move this particular pair of geese off the grounds before they started laying eggs, because that would just make them more aggressive once they had a nest to defend. And in order to do that, we had to drug them. Because putting a furious goose in a crate and driving it many miles away to Antelope Island to let it go is maybe the worst thing you can imagine. I don't remember why exactly, but we absolutely had to get this particular task done on this one specific day. I think maybe we only had a permit to relocate wildlife for one day or something. Anyway, on the one day when we could do this, this awful sleet storm rolled in. We were just being pelted with brutal freezing rain. It was miserable. 
My lead keeper Pete and I took a few little pieces of bread and put this liquid medication on it that would sedate the geese so we could move them safely to their fabulous new home. We tossed the bread to them and then we just followed them around the grounds from a distance, watching until they got sleepy enough that we could catch them. We caught the female just fine and got her in the crate to be moved, but something upset the male enough that he went out onto the pelican pond and he was just floating there in the midst of this hellacious sleet storm and the drugs started to hit him and he began to fall asleep. And he was definitely going to drown if we just left him there on the water. So Pete was like, shit, we gotta get that goose. So there was this canoe that we used to like repair the pond fountains or whatever. Pete and I ran for the canoe and launched it into the water and he grabbed this big net as we were jumping into this shitty boat and we started paddling frantically toward the goose whose head was moments away from hitting the water. And remember, driving horrific, biblical sleet storm going on at the same time. I was in the front of the canoe and Pete yelled my name. I turned around just in time to see this net come flying at my head. I barely caught it and I slid the net out and got it under the goose right as it lost consciousness. And then I had to haul this dead weight of an unconscious goose into a very tippy canoe without capsizing it, without letting the goose's head touch the water. All birds are way, way lighter than humans think they are, but geese are still big, solid birds. This one probably weighed like 12 pounds. That's a lot of weight to manipulate under those circumstances. But anyway, we got the goose and ourselves safely to shore. He was crated up next to his lady love, and the geese were relocated to Antelope Island, where I hope they went on to live long and happy lives together. In my own yard, a female cardinal feels secure in this spruce tree's foliage. The bright red male and his less colorful mate live here all year round. I did have a few harrowing experiences at Tracy Aviary, it's true. The funniest one involved Bruce the emu. Bruce had been raised by humans, so he was pretty heavily imprinted on them and preferred human company to the company of lady emus. Bruce was horny for human flesh. All the keepers kind of took on their own special improvement projects that we'd work on when we got all our other duties finished, and I thought the emu enclosure looked pretty sad and boring, so when I was still very new to the aviary and didn't know much about the individual birds yet, I volunteered to gussy up the emu's exhibit and add a bunch of enrichment and things that would make them happier and make it feel more like their natural environment. And when I said I'd like to make the emus my project, the more experienced keepers all kind of shared a mischievous look. And I didn't know what was going on at the time, but I soon found out. My first day working in the emu exhibit, I went in there with a shovel to dig up a certain area of the enclosure and start making my improvements. And out of nowhere, something hit me from behind like a linebacker was trying to tackle me. I was like, holy shit, and I turned around and there was Bruce, the emu, gathering himself for another run at me. And here's the thing about birds and bird anatomy. Most birds have evolved so that they no longer have a penis because most birds fly and you need to be as lightweight as possible if you're gonna fly. So if you can figure out how to reproduce without the dead weight of a penis, good, you're gonna evolve it away, right? But emus belong to a family of birds called the ratites and ratites have been flightless for almost all of their evolutionary history. So ratites still have dicks, and what unique dicks they are. An emu's penis is actually smaller and less horrible than an ostrich's penis, but it's still like nothing you've ever seen. These motherfuckers can wave their dicks. Literally, they can gesture with them expressively. So Bruce had his out and he was like displaying it vigorously and he was getting ready to come at me again because he wanted to bang me. I don't know, I guess I was flattered. And then I realized the other keepers were all standing around watching this and just laughing at me. They all knew this was gonna happen as soon as anyone went into Bruce's enclosure. I was glad I could provide him with a few laughs. These birds have no distinctive song, still their quiet ways, polite manner, and sleek, dressy appearance make them highly desirable neighbors. Tracy Aviary is actually a really cool facility that's doing a lot of important conservation and research work. One of the main conservation projects they work on is introducing African ground hornbills back into their natural habitat and helping decimated wild populations to recover. African ground hornbills are awesome birds. They are so cool. They're the closest you'll ever come to interacting with a dinosaur. You can just like feel their incredible intelligence whenever you're around them. It's almost spooky. They're also one of the most dangerous animals I've ever worked with personally. They're about three feet tall and they have these incredible arched bills, very strong, and they have all these adaptations that allow them to use their bills to break open the shells of land tortoises to eat the soft parts inside. Do you have any idea how great a force is required to break a large tortoise's shell? An African ground hornbill can easily shatter a human femur with a single blow. Very dangerous birds. And, and one of only two animals I've ever worked with where protective 
contact was required, which means a human is never inside the same enclosure with that animal, ever. No contact without a barrier between the fragile human and the animal. For context as to how serious business this bird species is, the other protective contact species I worked with was giraffes. Anyway, like I said, these guys are smart as hell. One of their natural behaviors is to use their extremely powerful bills to chip out the insides of stumps, and they use those cavities as nests. So in their exhibit, we provided them with like logs and stumps and things for them to peck at. There was this huge slab of some massive tree like lying on its side. And the hornbills had long ago hollowed out everything they could reach on this big piece of wood. They'd hang out in there all the time. It was like their fort, their clubhouse. One night before we all left the grounds, I forgot to get this large feeding dish out of their enclosure. And when I came in the next morning, I noticed that the hornbills had moved the dish across their enclosure, flipped it upside down and used it as a step stool so they could reach more of that stump. And they'd hollowed out all these parts of the wood that they hadn't been able to reach before. And I was like, shit, that's tool use. As far as I knew, tool use had never been documented before in captive African ground hornbills or in the wild, so I got really excited. I called all the other keepers over and we all stood around watching the hornbills for a while and finally we were like, yeah, this is tool use. So we got Roger to write to, uh, I don't remember who it was, some authority that was overseeing the ornithology project that was kind of the head of our hornbill breeding. And they asked us to design and implement some experiments to see if we could document more deliberate tool use in this species. So we worked on that for a couple weeks, like trying to figure out how we could produce clear documented evidence of this species using tools, if not creating them. And then we all got excited and came up with a bunch of other experiments to test other aspects of hornbill behavior like memory and communication. We had a lot of fun running those experiments, but the one that really stuck out to me was when we devised a way to test their memory. We started by putting a dead mouse, their favorite treat, under a flipped over feeding dish, and then we let them out of holding and onto their exhibit, and they immediately got curious about the upside down dish because it was different from what was usually there, right? So they went over and as a group, one of them flipped it over with their bill and they were all like astonished to find a mouse underneath. <laughs> you can see their, their reactions are like, oh! <laughs> So we put them back in the holding and then we put about two dozen upside down dishes all around their enclosure, but we only put dead mice under like a third of the dishes. Then we let them out again and I shit you not, they came out in pairs, in teams. They'd already devised a buddy system. They wandered around their enclosure, six birds in three pairs, and one of them would slide its bill under a dish and then open its bill just enough to like lift the dish up a tiny bit and his teammate would bend over and like put his head close to the ground so he could see underneath that crack and determine whether there was anything underneath the dish. If there was nothing they ignored it and they kept checking all the dishes until they found the ones that had mice and I have no idea how the one who was looking communicated to the one who was lifting up the dish that there was or was not food under that dish because they didn't make any noises that we could hear, but somehow they worked out a method among themselves. And also, they took turns getting the mice. So the first time a team located a mouse, the looker got to eat it, but the second time that same team found a mouse, the dish flipper got to eat it. All of the humans watching this were like gobsmacked. None of us had ever seen behavior like this in any species of bird before, not even among corvids, which were like famous for being super smart and using tools and stuff. It was mind blowing. We ran the same experiment several more times with all kinds of variations. We recorded it on video. We, somebody wrote up papers about it. I don't know where those papers went, somewhere I hope. I, I should see if I can find them on the internet, like in a biology archive or whatever. But that was really, really cool to be able to participate in the discovery of a previously undocumented behavior in another species. And to get to take part in designing and carrying out experiments to document is super fun. These are but a few of the many intriguing habits and mannerisms of our birds. There was a very special bird at Tracy Aviary. He's still there actually. Andy, the Andean condor. Andean condors are the largest flighted birds in the world. They're a member of the New World vulture family, which is my favorite group of birds. Vultures are very smart, very personable. They're really cool birds. The year I worked there, Andy turned 50 years old. Andean condors in captivity can live to be like about 80, so he was a little more than middle-aged. His 50th birthday was a big deal. The local news came out to do a story on him and all that. We made him a birthday cake out of cardboard that he could rip open and there was a bunch of stinky fish inside, his favorite. He got to rip open his birthday cake for the news cameras, it was very cute. 
Andy, being 50 at the time, was really a relic from a different era of zookeeping and a different era of thought about animal husbandry and the ethics of keeping wild animals in captivity. So he was deliberately imprinted on humans from the time he hatched from an egg, to the point that he actually rejected female condors and would have nothing to do with them. So unfortunately, he couldn't be a part of any breeding program, which was really too bad because endangered species like Andy and condors need all the genetic diversity they can get. But Andy loved humans. And he loved me in particular. He was much more polite about it than Bruce the Emu. But yeah, he did take a shine to me, and condors have pretty good eyesight, so he could tell it was me from, like, yards and yards away. He could pick me out from other humans. And whenever he saw me, he would do his little mating display, which was so cute. Condors, like all New World vultures, have totally bare heads and necks, no feathers at all, just skin. And he would stretch his little head way, way up into the air, make his neck as long as he could, and then he would turn his skin from its usual color, which was kind of a, like a pinkish gray, to a beautiful yellow. It was almost lemon yellow, not quite that bright, but very impressive, very handsome. And he would wave his yellow head and neck back and forth, and he would rapidly click his tongue to get my attention because New World vultures don't have a syrinx, which is the bird equivalent of a voice box, so they can't make any noises other than hisses or tongue clicks. But he would do all this to get my attention, and I'd come over to talk to him, and he'd get all flirty and cute. It was adorable. And then if it was morning or evening, and we didn't have anybody on the grounds except the keepers, I would go into the enclosure with him and spend a little time with him. He was very safe since he was so heavily imprinted on humans. He loved human company. He lived in this huge wire dome at the time, so he could actually fly a little bit in it. And it had this big rocky crag with a cave in it, which is a condor's natural habitat. When he heard someone entering his enclosure, he'd poke his little head out of the cave, which was like 20, 25 feet off the ground. And then he would fly down to you. There was this stump you could sit on and he'd jump from his crag and glide down. And he knew how to fold up his wings and land right in front of you without hitting you, like inches from you. But again, largest flighted bird in the world. His wingspan was like 15 feet or more. Huge. And as he landed and folded his wings, this whack of air would hit you just smack right in your face. Andy was so fun. He loved scritches on his head and neck, and on his snood, the little fleshy dingle-dangle on top of his beak. He loved to play tug-of-war. There were various toys in his enclosure, and we'd play tug-of-war all the time. Sometimes he just wanted to circle you as you sat on the stump. He'd just walk in circles around you really slowly. I don't know what was going through his head when he did it, but it seemed important to him, so sometimes I'd just sit there for like 20 minutes while he circled me, and then I'd say goodbye and go about the rest of my work. But I always loved the look of his footprints in the snow. They were so big, they looked just like dinosaur tracks. And the way he smelled, I know this sounds crazy, but vultures smell so good. Much better than you would expect a scavenger to smell. It's like this clean, ozonic, almost piney smell. It's wonderful. I miss that bird so much. He's a cool guy. The young jays grew rapidly and soon left the nest. But Joan long remembered this family of blue jays, which brought so much enjoyment during a period that would otherwise have been monotonous and lonely. After Tracy Aviary, I worked at Point Defiant Zoo in Tacoma for a while. The less said about that experience, the better. I loved all the animals I worked with, and a lot of the people too, but some of the people were horrendous. Here's the thing about animal-centric jobs like zoos or vet offices, which I've also worked in a number of times. Most people go into that line of work because they hate people and have atrociously bad interpersonal skills, and they mistakenly believe they'll just be working with animals all the time. Alas, that is not the case. Point Defiance was a fucking nightmare because of the people in my department. It was headed by these two women, Natalie and Donovan, who were, honest to God, two of the most psychotic, fucking abusive pieces of shit I've ever had the misfortune of encountering in my entire life. Imagine the very worst bully girls from your middle school. Put that attitude into the bodies of grown-ass women and you have Natalie and Donovan. Non-stop gaslighting, mockery, bullying, intentionally fucking with people's schedules to make their lives as difficult as possible. They were just mean. Mean, mean, miserable, awful people. And I hope Every single day of their lives is unbearably terrible because it was what they deserve for the way they treated me and all the other people in our department. I couldn't wait to get the fuck out of there so I never had to deal with those trashy ass bitches again. I hate them so much. Fuck them both. Anyway, as soon as an opening came up at Woodland Park Zoo in Seattle, I got the hell out of Point Defiance. The job I took was a temporary keeper gig working with the giraffes which I'd never worked with before and was quite a change from the birds and small hoofstock and invertebrates and stuff that I'd worked with at Point Defiance. But Natalie and Donovan weren't there, so I was like, yeah, I'll work with giraffes. I'll do anything to get away from these psychopaths. My very first day on the job as a temp giraffe keeper, I was like, 
what have I gotten myself into? Giraffes are so big. Like, words fail me to describe their hugeness and the weird prehistoric vibes they exude. They feel like they belong on a different Earth from the one we know. And they really do. They're a holdover from, you know, several million years ago when megafauna ruled the Earth. And they put the mega in megafauna. These fuckers are so big, they move through time in a different way from us. Like, it takes them a really long time to move their limbs because their limbs are the size of trees. They move in slow-mo because their mass-to-gravity ratio is pliocene. I am tall for a woman. I'm 5'11", so almost 6 feet tall. And the first time I was ever up close to a giraffe, I was in the back keeper area behind the giraffe holding, getting trained on the routine by a more experienced giraffe keeper. And I was standing beside this big steel door that opened into the actual holding space where the giraffes would hang out off exhibit. And the door had a plexiglass window in it. The male giraffe walked past the door as I was standing there, and I just remember looking up through that window, and as he passed me, like, a foot away, the bottom of his belly was at least two feet above my head. And I was just like, shit, that's a huge animal. How am I going to do this? One of the main things the guy who trained me really impressed upon me was that giraffes are super duper dangerous because they don't really think humans are there at all. Like, you know, we're as insignificant as cowbirds to them. So you have to just stay away from them and never ever be in their space because they'll swing some enormous body part or other around and crush you or knock you off a ladder or whatever and then you'll probably die. Great, got it. Then after this harrowing introduction, he tells me to go fill up the hay racks in the empty holding space so we can shift the giraffes around and clean the holding that they're currently using. So I go into the empty holding, I kind of assess the situation. Dave, the male giraffe, yes, his name is really Dave. He's over in the adjacent holding and I'm like, I don't think he can reach me where I'll be working. I think he'll be fine. I get this huge ladder out, set it up next to the hay rack that's like 20 feet in the air, I don't know. I do not do well with heights, by the way, but somehow I managed to climb up this ladder while I'm hauling a big garbage bag with like five or six flakes of hay in it. That's a lot of weight to haul up a ladder for those of you who've never dealt with hay before. So I'm up there trying to ignore the fact that I'm far above the ground and dealing with animals that are much more dangerous than all the birds I've been used to for all of my career so far. And as I'm stuffing hay into this rack, suddenly Dave just reaches across from the other holding pen, just whoop, there's this big fucking giraffe head right there, like next to my face, in my immediate vicinity, while I'm clinging in terror to a 20-foot ladder. I just let the bag of hay drop to the ground, and I quickly and carefully got the hell down from that ladder and let Dave have all the hay he wanted. My god. In addition to Dave, there were two other giraffes living there at the time, both female. Among accredited zoos, there's a real effort to monitor breeding so that animals don't become too inbred, so they're kept as genetically diverse as possible, right? And Dave and this other giraffe named Olivia had already recently had a baby, and they didn't want that same combination of genes to be overrepresented in the captive gene pool, so we had to put Olivia on birth control while we allowed Dave to mate with the other female. I can't remember her name, sorry. But every morning I had to put this liquid birth control on a piece of bread and then feed it to Olivia, and then later that day I had to go stand outside the giraffe enclosure with a clip board and watch the giraffes while they're fucked. And I had to keep track of how many attempts were made <laughs> and whether those attempts were successful and how long each uh, encounter lasted. <laughs> Let me tell you, it was sure a lot of fun to have little kids ask me what I was doing and try to think of creative ways to answer their questions without giving them too much information. That <laughs> was great. In about three weeks, the eggs finally hatch and Jimmy discovers how lively a bird's nest becomes when it is full of young sandpipers. We did have one really scary day at Woodland Park. See, there's always a potential for animal escapes or for idiots to go into enclosures with dangerous animals. Two days out of every year, accredited zoos close to the public and all staff is required to attend at least one day of safety drills, which mainly consists of rehearsing what we're all gonna do if any of the animals on the dangerous animal list gets out of their enclosure. Spoiler alert, the animal always gets killed, because that's part of how you maintain accreditation, by not permitting situations where visitors or staff might be mauled and or eaten by animals. At all times, in every accredited zoo, there is someone on staff who's on rifle duty, and their job is, if one of the designated dangerous animals escapes, they shoot to kill. And this is what we drill on, on these safety days. Well, one night there was a big windstorm in Seattle, and the next morning before the zoo opened, we were all going around cleaning up the grounds as best we could. 
And then the zoo opened and visitors started coming in and just like maybe 10 minutes after we opened, when animals are just starting to come out onto their exhibits, we get a call over our radios. It was one of the like groundskeeper guys who worked in uh, the gardening department and he said, uh, I think there's a gorilla out. It's up on the roof of one of the buildings. Oh my God, you could feel the record scratch go through the whole entire staff. Somebody got on the radio and said, is this a drill or is this a real situation? And the guy said, it's real. I think it's the baby gorilla. Azuma had been born at the zoo a year before and she was still a juvenile and still very curious and playful. And everyone loved her so much, staff and visitors alike. And my heart just sank because there was no possible ending to this scenario that didn't involve Azuma being shot. But the boss of the whole operation got on the radio and said, emergency procedures, everybody sweep your department immediately. So I did what I'd been trained to do and I dropped what I was doing and went out into the public areas I was supposed to cover in the event of an emergency. And sure enough, there were a few visitors who were already there. I kind of like edged up to them and said, hi, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I need you guys to follow me immediately. It was two adult women, thank God no kids were with them. And one of them said kind of sarcastically, what, did an animal get out? And I just said, Yes, and it's a really serious situation and I need you to come with me immediately for your own safety. They looked really freaked out then, but I led them to one of the keeper areas that are normally off limits to the public, got them inside, locked the door, and then I had to stand there with them and monitor the radio while everyone else was calling in that they'd clear their areas and I had to listen to the communications while the person on rifle duty got into position and prepared to shoot little baby Azuma. It was so awful. It was truly just a horrible situation to be in. Happily though, this story does not end tragically and I can't tell you how relieved I still am to this day to be able to say that. Because Azuma realized it was almost feeding time and she ran back over to the blown down tree branch she'd used to climb out of the exhibit and she climbed back inside and went to her mother and waited for her breakfast. The jubilation that flew around the radios that morning was palpable. We were all so relieved that nobody had to shoot the baby gorilla. And if she hadn't just decided to go back to her enclosure on her own, this story would have had a very different ending. Grosbeaks also come for orange juice during the early weeks of spring. So do the catbirds, just as though they knew all about the importance of vitamins. So that turned out to be a good day at the zoo. Here's the worst day I had at that particular zoo. I had worked my way back into bird care, my specialty, and I was enjoying it. By that time, I was really pushing hard to get my writing career off the ground, and I'd landed my first agent, and she had my first novel out on sub, but it had already been rejected a few times, and my agent seemed to be losing interest. She was brand new to agenting and still very easily intimidated by rejection, so the fact that six publishers had turned it down so far was like a massive blow to her while it was nothing to me. I didn't care. I, I had gotten rejected by a hundred literary agents before I landed her. So I was like, I don't give a shit about six rejections. Let's keep going. But I could tell she was getting discouraged and wanted to drop me as a client. Anyway, I checked my email that morning before I started counting my animals and cleaning. And I had an email from my agent that said she wanted to talk to me on the phone later that day. I was like, ugh. I could tell what was coming, like I could already sense it. It was not good news, because if it were, she would have mentioned good news in her email. So I dejectedly went about my work. Part of a zookeeper's day is to count every single animal in every exhibit at least twice a day. Well, I was in this big walkthrough exhibit where birds are like free flying all around you, trying to count up all the animals that were in there. It was like 50 birds, maybe more than that. And as I was looking up into a tree, some fucking dickhead bird shit into my open eye. I don't know if you've ever had bird shit in your eye before, but it is not an experience I would recommend to anyone. It's hot. It feels hot and gross. And I was like, ah, I went staggering for an eye wash station and rinsed it out. And one of my coworkers was like, oh God, that's horrible. I'm so sorry. And she disappeared for a minute. And when she came back, she was all sober. And she was like, Libby, I have some bad news. The enclosure you're in is positive for coccidiosis. Now, coccidiosis is a parasitic disease that's zoonotic, which means it can transmit from other animals to humans. And we were desperately trying to figure out whether coccidia could be transmitted through mucous membranes or not, like the eye, and no one knew. The vet of the whole zoo didn't know, but she, the vet, said, you know, over the radio, just to be on the safe side, that I needed to swab my eye with alcohol wipes. You guys. 
I fucking wiped my eyeball with a burning, fiery, satanic alcohol wipe to prevent myself from maybe getting a parasitic disease by a bird shit in my eye! It was such a fucking awful day. My eye felt like it was on fire all day long. Oh my god, it sucked. And then I dragged my ass home to my shitty little studio apartment and took this call with my agent, who dumped me as a client by lying to me, telling me that she was only going to represent kid-lit authors from then on, and then like one week later she was all over Twitter talking about how she just signed six new clients who all wrote nothing but adult lit. What a piece of shit. I mean, at least have the spine to admit that you just can't take rejection and blame it on your clients when their books don't sell. This industry, I swear to god, it's full of clowns. Anyway, I felt so awful. I just laid on my futon in my tiny, crappy apartment and sobbed for like a straight hour. I felt that day like I was never going to get out of the hell that was my life. I was gonna be stuck dealing with a divorce that my husband refused to finalize and working in a stressful, depressing environment with unhappy animals and never living up to my potential or reaching my dreams forever. And my eyes still hurt. It was terrible. Children at the neighborhood school find a morning dove can bring new interests. The youngsters are first fascinated by the bird's well-groomed appearance. Several years later, just after I'd begun to write full-time, I went back to Tracy Aviary with Paul on a road trip. My divorce was finalized by then, and uh, I had a new boyfriend, who would soon become my second husband. The place had changed a lot. Improvements, nicer facilities, it looked great. The exhibits were a huge step up from where they'd been before. All the animals looked really healthy. I was glad to see it. All credit to Roger and Shakira for getting that funding. I wasn't really excelling in my career yet, but I had been able to justify quitting all my day jobs and just doing nothing but writing, and that felt like a huge victory. It was a huge victory. While I was looking at some other exhibit, I heard a familiar clicking sound, and I turned, and there was Andy the Condor in his brand new, beautiful exhibit space, and he had stretched his neck up and was swaying from side to side. And as I watched that flush of lemon yellow moved up his neck, he recognized me. After all that time, he still remembered me and he still liked me. I went over to him and talked to him and wished I could scratch him through the bars, but I knew the keepers wouldn't take kindly to my doing that. So I just talked to him for a long time. And I told him that everything was going great for me now and that I missed him every day and still thought about him every day. And I was glad things were going so well for him too. And it made me feel really good to know that after all those years and all I'd been through to get to where I was then, Andy still remembered me too and thought of me fondly. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Please remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please take a few minutes to rate and review since that fills the algorithm's bird feeders and allows me to attract more curious weirdos like you to my yard. If you want more stuff from the inside of my head, check out my novel The Prophet's Wife because it's the best thing I've ever made and I really want it to find the people who will appreciate it. Sound collage components came from the following YouTube channels. Bell Museum. Featured music was Old Arcs a Movin' by A.A. Gray and Seven Foot Dilly, which is easily the best band name of all time, and that tune is in the public domain. Additional music included Night Drive and Set It Up from Silverman Sound Studios. Outro music is Run in the Mardi Gras by Boko, used with permission of Big Crown Records. For more information about this podcast, including socials and ways to contact me, visit futuresaintpod.com. I'm Libby Grant, and until next time, do good magic and make good worlds. Oh,